welcome to Challenging Behaviors, the podcast that challenges your behaviors, my behaviors, our behaviors in society today. We guest. We had a guest had today. A guest today. Who was our guest, Tom? Elizabeth Wright, yeah. a Paralympic swimmer, and also all round just campaigner and advocate and Activist. reviewer of magazines. She does a lot of Podcaster. stuff. Podcaster. Yeah. She's, uh, she's got a lot going on. Uh, so our conversation kind of, we used the new Netflix documentary, Rising Phoenix, uh, as our kind of basis for conversation, but we cover lots of different things um, from inclusion, representation. Even a bit of allyship. A bit of allyship. Chat shit about the government. Talk about Australia. Said the Paralympics is a sham. <laughs> that was one of our uh, quotes at one point. You have to listen for an hour, though, to get the yeah, context Yeah, to figure out that. what that's about. That's a good tease. <laughs> Hopefully people actually listen to that and don't just quote that, Tom. Oh, imagine. People just pick it up and they go, oh, I'm not listening to it. These guys are evil. It's all the Paralympics are sham. I'm turning off now. Should we maybe give it a bit more context? Um, it was just saying that the, the presentation of being very pro-disability of London the, the UK during the Olympics. The London thing. At the same time as doing all the nasty things that they've been doing for all this time. Yeah. Shows how much of a sham the whole setup is. is Obviously, it, Paralympians the, are the doing amazing. The government's caring is a sham. Yeah, not the Paralympics itself. Paralympics <laughs> themselves are an amazing spectacle of sport. But it was just the fact that that was a quote that sort of got built up to. We um we have no issue with the Paralympics. Jack's actually met one more Paralympian than me. Yeah. So if there's any Paralympians listen who just want to meet me and not Jack, um, that would be amazing. Preferably two, you so just, I can overtake you just Jack. You said yourself twice. You said me and not Jack. That's the same person. <laughs> I'm Jack. This is not Jack. You're listening to Challenging Behaviours. Enjoy. Enjoy. Or don't. Do what you want. He did it! <laughs> Zooey Mama. We can be... We, we're happy with swearing. The whole spectrum from fuck to bum all. That's, well, that's good. I can, I can throw in, you know, a few bastards and, and buggers and bloodies because they just seem very Aussie to yeah. me. Like, I'll oh, just bring in like so. that. Because like, I kind of first um, link in, uh, I watched uh, Rising Phoenix yesterday, huh? and yeah. I think there's one kind of element to it that out of us three, you're you're in the best situation to answer it. The, yeah. the wheelchair rugby man, yeah. his granddad, is that the most Australian man there's ever been? <laughs> Probably. Bought his three-year-old grandson a motorbike i mean yeah. i mean the thing is like it's it's not every australian has this experience but i will say like even me because my my mum's cousin owned a cattle property in northern new south wales and we used to go there on holidays all the time and of course because of my limb difference i couldn't actually ride a motorbike or a quad bike myself um 
but um you know my my kind of second cousins and third cousins like they because they were country kids they were always on the motorbikes and quad bikes and stuff and so i just get on the back i just hold on tight and go for these crazy rides so i think i think it probably seems very Australian, but I can't generalize that much. I mean, there will be some Aussies that would oh, look at me like, I've never experienced that. Oh, yeah, I used to have a hat with corks swinging yeah. off it. It's like... <laughs> I've got one of those around somewhere, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn it. We should have we should have all, like, coordinated and all be wearing hats with corks swinging <laughs> off them. Like... Yeah, we've... Um, uh, I, I work for a charity and Tom volunteers for it, and we've recently... Um, been doing partner work with a charity in Melbourne. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, gosh. So okay. Yeah. And lots of um, kind of learning about Australia over the last <laughs> couple of months. So, and how um, they handle lockdown. So I think this is a perfect opportunity uh, for you to introduce yourself. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Elizabeth Wright, although most people call me Liz. I'm happy for you guys to call me Liz. Um, uh, I am Australian obviously. Um, I don't think I've lost the accent that much, even though I've lived in the UK for 10 years. Um, I was born and raised in Sydney, Western Sydney, which makes me a, a true blue Westie, which is the equivalent of a chav <laughs> over here. Although, um, although I kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe I am a bit chavvy. I have no idea. Um, I don't keep up with all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I grew up in Western Sydney. Um, I was born with limb difference. So um, I was born with half my right leg missing and half my right arm missing. Um, my parents weren't told at all that I was going to be born with a disability. Um, they think the doctors knew that something wasn't quite right, but they didn't actually tell them what it was. And in actual fact, the doctor, my mum's GP kept on saying to her, why don't you have an abortion? You're a, you're a, what was the term? A geriatric mother. Um, she was 36. And I mean, I guess in medical terms, they are considered old. Like once you get to that age in terms of having children, but you know, they kept on pushing this idea and mum and dad were like, no, 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 no. Like we're, we're, having this child, um, which I'm really glad they did. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be having this experience right now. Um, so yeah, I was born and it was a real shock to my parents. Um, but you know, they kind of brought me home and they had, you know, the discussions that I imagine a lot of parents in that situation have, they decided that they were going to raise me exactly the same way as they raised my older brother and sister. They wanted to raise me to be as independent as possible. I think it's, it's interesting because the time I was born, I think the idea of the social model of disability was just like a really tiny idea out there in the universe that Mike Oliver was going to pick up on very soon. Um, but it wasn't quite a reality yet. Um, so I think their idea was that obviously they recognized that I was going to live in a world that wasn't built for me to live in. And they wanted to make sure that I had the skills um, as much as possible to be able to handle that. Um, so they really raised me to be as absolutely as independent as possible. And I think, I think a lot of parents of disabled kids do that anyway. Um, and I think that's why we as a community make absolute kick-ass problem solvers because we've had to problem solve literally our whole lives. Mm. <laughs> 
So, um, so that was kind of, you know, the, the attitude my parents had and I was growing up and that involved then me stealing my brother's skateboard so that I could get around quicker, you know, finding all these solutions to mobility and, and being able to do all these things that I wanted to do what my older brother and sister were doing. Um, and then when I was about two, um, we had a pool put in our backyard because being Aussie and every Aussie family like has a pool in the backyard. Um, and I just loved being in the water so much as a kid. I think um, it's actually interesting because like on Rising Phoenix, uh, one of the, or the swimmer yeah. um, on there, she speaks about how when she was little, she wanted to be a ballerina and she wanted to be graceful. And I did too. When I was, re when I was watching it, I really resonated with that because I wanted to be a ballerina too. I loved watching ballet. I loved mm. dance. But obviously with my physical disability, there was no way in hell I was ever going to become a ballerina. You know, it's just a fact um, as well as the fact that I'm really short. And I think ballet dancers have to be like really tall <laughs> and I'm like five foot two. So there was, you know, even if I had all my limbs, it probably wasn't going to happen. Um, but similar thing um, to Ellie, I like on rising Phoenix, I kind of felt that in water, I achieved that feeling of being, a ballerina there was yeah. the gracefulness in there um my disability or, or my limb difference ceased to matter in any way so it's like when i speak to kids i say to them like growing up all of my friends could do handstands and cartwheels and stuff like that and i physically couldn't do that on land but actually in water i can do that i can do handstands in water and so for me, water was like this revolutionary environmental space that my limb difference completely ceased. Yeah, it's like a great metaphor as well for like um, the social model. The fact your surroundings is what actually, yeah. you know. Exactly. It eliminated disability completely yeah. for me. So absolutely, you're right in terms of that, that metaphor for the social model. So yeah, that imagine if we could do that for every single environment that we encounter and make that a space where disability ceases to, to be an issue or, or, you know, it, removing of those barriers that stops us from reaching our potential. So of course I was swimming, love being in the water. I just realized this has become not just an introducing myself, but literally it's all about me. Yeah. Great. I mean, <laughs> As I said earlier, really the podcast is the research, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. makes it a lot easier for us. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I'm making it easier for you guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I I love being in the water. Like, grew up literally with pool in the backyard, and um, and when I got to the age of twelve, it was announced that Sydney had won the right to host the 2000 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And that was when I was just like, well, I want to swim at those games. So I, I told that to mom and dad and I don't think they quite believed me at first, but I know it's a protective thing. And I know that's with any parent, actually. I think if your child, like whether your child like able-bodied or not, or disabled, if they come to you and say, oh, mom and dad, I want to like swim at the Olympics or I want to win an Oscar or I want to do this or something really big and crazy and mad. Um, most parents would be like, yeah, don't get your hopes up. Like it's probably not going to happen. And that was my parents' response to me. But I just think I'm so bloody stubborn about stuff that I was just like, can you find me a coach? I want to do this. 
Um, and I, they found me a coach and I started training. And three years later, I went to my first Paralympic games at 16, um, you know, to Atlanta and, um, and in my very first Paralympic final won a bronze medal in like one of my first Paralympic medal. Um, so yeah. And then that kind of went on to the Sydney games. I just trained, trained all through my teenage years. Um, and then at the Sydney games, um, uh, kind of came out of the blue and in the 400 free won a silver medal and in the four by 50 freestyle relay, we, we walked away with the bronze, even though we were supposed to win the gold. <laughs> we were, we were literally yeah. on paper. We should have won that race, <laughs> but we didn't <laughs> can beat us. <laughs> Those Japanese and the Americans came second. Those Americans. No, um, it's like they got in the way, those annoying other elite athletes that were there to try and win. Um, but, you know, that was an amazing experience and it's really informed who I am today, that whole kind of really my whole childhood's really informed who I am today yeah. and where I'm at. I'm going to let you guys get a word in now because <laughs> I could talk for ages. Um, how it took um, when it was announced that the Olympics were going to be in Sydney. That was like, because I remember when mm. it was announced it was going to be in London. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't care at all. But how many people that actually has made like the fact it's going to be in their, you know, uh, home country and stuff has made them go, ooh, this is something I actually really want, want to do. I wonder yeah. like how yeah. much of that happens, like but both, I think, both but, in the Olympics and the Paralympics. Like, but I think, you know what? I think you have to at least have an interest in being competitive yourself in a sport. So it's not even so much that you have to be interested in sport because anyone could be interested in sport, but have no desire to go compete. Right. Um, you have to, you have to have that desire to compete. And, um, and for me, it was always that. So like even, even at, at primary school, because, you know, my parents fought to get me to go to a mainstream primary school. So I was going to a mainstream primary school and in my final year at our swimming gala, I was like, I actually want to swim this time. I want to compete. And this is competing against non-disabled kids. Mm. So I didn't even know if the teachers would let me because, you know, they used to let me try out for different sports but it's literally try out it wasn't like okay we're going to put you on the team because you know in their mind it was like oh let's it's almost like that oh let's be nice to her let's yeah. let her try out but you know we won't win any games if she's on the team so we won't let her you know actually take part um but at the swimming gala the teachers were like well okay if you want to do this you can do it. Um, so I, I did go in um, my very first swimming competition in year six, at, you know, my last year in primary school. And they ended up having to, to combine the girls race and the boys race. Cause there only, there was only me and one other girl who was competing in this race and there were five boys. So they decided just to, you know, all in the same age group. So we're going to put us all in together. And, um, and I just thought, you know, um, I'm just going to go in there and do the best I can because it's all I can do. I mean, like all of these kids have two arms and two legs. <laughs> what can happen? Well, I beat the other girl. <laughs> and if I'd been racing the boys, I would have come third. <laughs> so at that point I realized that, hang on, actually, maybe I'm really good at this 
competitive swimming yeah. stuff and actually really enjoyed winning. Um, and so it was kind of that I think was really the catalyst for me to go when it was announced for the Sydney games that actually a, I have a competitive streak in me that I love competing in swimming. Um, it's not just a generalized, Oh, I like watching the Olympic games or I like watching football or I like watching cricket. It's literally like, I love that feeling of being in the water and competing and racing and, and swimming like to the best of my ability in that moment. Um, and then to have that opportunity to swim, like compete at a Paralympic games in the actual city you've grown up in, that's like an elite athlete's dream. So it was, I think you need to have like, especially in light of if, if you need something to tip you over the edge to actually want to compete at Paralympics, yes, having a home games is a really big push, a really big catalyst. But you also have to have that desire to compete as well. <laughs> like it needs to be there. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me in Rising Phoenix, I think it was um, Tatiana who had to really fight to be able to join in. Yeah. Well, call it PE, the, to join in the sports teams. Um, oh, she was. She was. High school. And what yeah. really amazed me there was like how recent that was. Yeah. Like, the fact that I think it was in the mid 2000s, possibly when um she that she had to sue the government yes to be able to and change policy like she actually changed policy and i think but but again coming back to metaphors and stuff like that don't you think that that is actually a metaphor for every battle that we kind of have to have whether it's in sport or in access to work or education um or um, inclusion or tackling representation and language issues and stuff and that around the disability community. It's this constant fight. And I think for a lot of non-disabled people, they don't, because they're so, you know, it's the same with racism. It's the same with race structures and that, that we face. It's, it's the same with ableism. There are these structures in place that are so solid that non-disabled people don't even see. The, these issues and so we're literally having to shout about it like the amount of people when I say to, to to them about what people have said to me barriers I faced and I imagine you guys are the same um is the, like uh, quite a lot of my non-disabled friends are quite surprised they're like oh really like they said that to you or that, ha that actually happened I can't believe that and it's like yeah but this is a daily thing for us um, and you just can't see it because you're not having to experience that every single day. And I think that, you know, with Tatiana in terms of the, the school, it might, it might seem like a surprise to a lot of teachers, especially these days or parents that, that, that was actually so recent, but it's not really, I guess, a surprise to us because yeah. we have to face that on so many different levels every single day from like the years of doing this podcast and like the work that me and Jack have done it's like the way I'd sum it up is it's just never it's never the easiest route for people it's always there's always some sort of curve or something you have to go around or climb over or go under like to get to yeah. even the simplest thing there's always something that makes it not how it should be so you look at it on paper and it's a straight line but when in practice you're doing it there's all these different things you have to sort of avoid and it's, it's like you said about the social model where all of these are from kind of other people's views of how it should go and not how it should actually be in a way. Exactly. And don't you think like that's, that's one of the biggest issues I think. And I think 
especially I've seen a lot in the last year, a lot of people are saying like, if you want to have inclusion and diversity around disability or, you know, or you're having inclusion and diversity, first off, disability quite often is forgotten. Um, and I think we're getting a lot more vocal about that. Um, but also when, when you kind of are speaking to people about inclusion and diversity and including disability in that, quite often they're not getting actual disabled people in to talk to them about the issues that are in that space. They're just talking to other non-disabled people. Um, and I think that, that that is the biggest issue. It's like you've actually got to talk to the, pe the people in the community or employ people from that community who understand. Um, the experience of that community. And it's not to say that, you know, because of course I can't understand what it's like to be a wheelchair user or to be visually impaired or anything like that. But there are certain touch points that we all encounter because of our different impairments um, in terms of barriers and attitudes and stuff like that. And so I think, you know, in that sense, I would trust say one of, uh, say one of you guys were asked to go into an organization to talk about, diversity and inclusion especially around disability and like and accessibility i would trust that you guys would like would have the best interest of the community at heart same as i would hope that i would have the best interest of the community at heart going in and, and talking about that yeah there's um, a great line i think it's pretty much right at the end of um uh Rising Phoenix. Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, um, was, for some reason I was thinking raining Phoenix. Raining. <laughs> it's raining Phoenixes. <laughs> um, it's, it's raining men. It's rain, yeah. raining Phoenixes. Oh, it's dangerous. Um, <laughs> um, and so oh, I'm terrible with names. Uh, but uh, someone says, when we're all united, that's mm -hmm. when a movement happens. Like, yeah. So something we've actually spoken about Quite, it's come up quite a few times and how disability is such a broad thing and there's so many different challenges that like each individual faces and um sometimes what some people from who have some some needs don't quite get the needs of others and things and there's and i, hate, I already hate this phrase but infighting that happens and mm. stuff this mainly happens on social media to be fair you rarely <laughs> see it anywhere else but that's what it's for isn't it now exactly <laughs> um but yeah he makes such a good point like when we're all united so there was the odd like the crowds and stuff which they weren't mm -hmm. sure were going to be there but then became mm -hmm. huge and things like that um and they were all united in like seeing mm -hmm. like recognizing wow this is incredible mm -hmm. um stuff that is going on here and all of the athletes you know i mean oh you can probably answer this as well the like paralympic um like olympic village looks wild <laughs> it's like it's just a massive party going on like all of the time <laughs> it's a very strange situation i always find it difficult to explain to people what staying in the athletes village is actually like because it is literally like a village or a small town like you you have everything in there so if you want to go get your hair cut or dyed you've got a hairdressers you can go to if you want to go get um a pedicure you can go get a pedicure if you want to go eat like this is the weirdest thing and this really flips kids out when i speak to them in schools about this like if you want free mcdonald's you can go and get free mcdonald's because mcdonald's is a sponsor <laughs> and um and you don't have to pay for your mcdonald's like um so it's like a very strange bubble that you're living in for about three or four weeks 
um, because you do go in there like about a week or so before the game starts that you can get settled. You can start um, training in the, the actual pool and getting used to the, the feel of it and the atmosphere and all that stuff. Um, but there is definitely, it's kind of interesting because you've got to have that balance. Like, yes, there is a bit of a party atmosphere in there. There's a lot of entertainment. There's a lot of socializing going on and stuff like that. But at the same time, you're there for a reason. You're there for a job. So you do have to keep a certain level of focus happening. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of so funny because I remember like the, the two Paralympic games I went to, I, I was... I would compete in the 50 meters and the hundred meter freestyle. And they were usually two of the races kind of towards the end of the competition. And I'd always hoped that I wouldn't make the finals of them because then it meant that I'd finish in the morning and then like the last day of competition, <laughs> I could just let my hair down. Go grab that free um, McDonald's. And so, and so, yeah. And I used to hate it cause I'd always come like, um, like I'd compete and I wasn't, they weren't my two best races, but I'd always like come like kind of leading into the final i'd be about ninth or tenth and when you're when you're nine ten when you're ninth or tenth and i think possibly 11th or 12th you're actually on hold basically so like you have to show up and still do a warm-up because someone might pull out or a couple of people might pull out of that final and if they do that then you're going to be called up to compete so you still have to prepare as if yeah. you're going into the final even though you're probably not actually going to go into the final um so it was really weird, weird and annoying situation because I just want to let my hair down and enjoy that party atmosphere. Um, but then I'd always come like, like be ranked ninth or 10th or something. I'd be like, damn it. Like, seriously, could I not have swum slower? <laughs> like really, um, you know, just to avoid that situation. And, but you know, like that last night, um, you know, you'd, you'd finish competing, you'd have the, the closing ceremony. And I mean, I remember in Sydney, um, we kind of finished the closing ceremony. And I think that finished up about 10, 10 o'clock at night, 10 30 at night. And, um, and I remember like the buses were so packed to get back, like for the athletes to get back to the village that we just decided we'd walk, which is insane because it was quite a walk to get back to the athletes village. Um, and so much so that my, um, one of my best friends who, who's also a Paralympic swimmer, I had to have her boyfriend piggyback me part of the way. Cause like she's in a wheelchair and she was like, it was pretty flat. So she was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. And I'm like, my legs hurt. Like here I am an elite athlete. My legs hurt. <laughs> like Joe carry me. So like he had to piggyback me most of the way. Um, but then we got changed and we went out into Sydney, we went in, out into town, stayed out all night. You know, you, you really just, yeah, it's because, you know, a lot of the time, like you're teenagers or you're in your early twenties or mid twenties or late twenties. And of course, like you, you like every other single person in the world, you like to have a good party. You like to let your hair down. You like to have a drink. You like to do other stuff. So you're going to do it. <laughs> I can't imagine as well, like, it can't be that common where you'd have such a concentrated like uh, amount of like people with disabilities, like all sharing mm -hmm. one space. And I, you must learn so much from all the other people around you and like about yeah. their different needs and um, oh, challenges absolutely. they face. Um, and, and, you know, for me, especially um, growing up, I never knew any other disabled kids. Um, there was no other 
people in my family with disabilities um, or physical disabilities, I should say, um, there was no, um, no one else in my school. I was the only child with a physical disability at my mainstream primary school. Um, you know, I went to brownies and I went to guides and did all that stuff. And there was, I was the only person with a physical disability that I knew. And so to suddenly at 13 be thrust into this world where there was literally hundreds of other teenagers, young adults, who had different types of impairments it was such a steep learning curve but i think definitely that's informed my view today because you know i look at photos from that time of the team and i sit there and i can go like well that person that was their impairment that was their condition that was their da 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 you know and so on and so forth and we're all so different yet you look at the photos and we're such a team we're bonded we're a community and, you know, you, we spoke earlier about the kind of, as, as you say, it's probably not the best term, but the infighting that happens in the disability community. And I know that it's possible for us to actually bond together and become this amazing team that can actually fight against ableism in this world and create better access and be better allies for each other. And I mean, that's something I'm very big on is about um, being better disability allies for each other. I mean, just because I'm disabled doesn't mean I can be a great disability ally. I could be one of the most rubbish disability allies out there, but I, you know, it's, I think it's, it's our responsibility as disabled individuals to learn about other types of impairments and conditions so that when we're in those situations where um, we're facing barriers and stuff like that. We can be so much more aware of, okay, it's not just about us and our accessibility. It's actually, do you have this as well? Because whereas this might not affect me, it might affect someone who's hard of hearing or has a guide dog or um, has autism or, you know, whatever that might be. And I think we, we, that's what the, the Paralympic team really taught me was about how we can be better allies for each other. Just before, um, I'd love to talk about allyship, but quickly, just because we've mentioned the Paralympic Village. I've always wondered, never known, because I've never spoken to Olympia before. Um, are you in the village for the whole time, even if your races finish earlier? Or if your races are right at the end, are you in the village for the whole time? Or do you just come for like a stint? No, no, you're there, you're there the whole okay, time. Cool. So you go, you go into like quite often... Um, and this will be the same with the Olympics and Paralympics. You go into pre-meet camp. So like for us, I'll use Sydney as an example. We went down to the Australian Institute of Sport about two weeks, uh, no, about four weeks before the, the Paralympics started. And I think we had about two weeks down there where we were, it was just like intense training. We were speaking to sports psychologists, nutritionists. We were, um, you know, working with physios that were, filming us under the water to make sure that we were swimming as efficiently as possible. You know, it was all this technical stuff that we had to do just to make sure that we were in the best form possible. And then we were bussed up to the athletes village. And then that was when I remember when we first got there, we walked into this big um, warehouse before we actually went into the village. And it was like this long kind of loopy, path that we had to follow and it was basically to get our kit so we were given this big bag and we basically had to just walk along going this is my size and we were getting like swimming costumes and track suits and just all the kit that we would need um for the next two weeks um and then we 
just go straight into the athletes village so even if you were there for like one race which was on the very last day of competition you were in that village so oh wow i've always wondered because i always felt yeah. like when you watch like it playing out i was like i wonder if they sort of get a just, taste of the village and then just have to get off and I was like, yeah. <laughs> like well we're leaving now <laughs> no 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 you're there. Quick, uh, you're there a quick moment uh tom so how many paralympians have you met I've only met one. I've met two. Zoom Winning! Jack's <laughs> met two. Jack's met two. So, um, we've, Jack is more consistently good at turning up host podcast. 100% more uh, Paralympians than you have. Um, Tom, you have to up your game. <laughs> I know, I know. I need to meet more. It's not, it's not that easy. because Jack. to you, Tom. It's all right. <laughs> Jack organises all our interviews as well, so he knows. He knows how to meet people. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've just always wondered that. But on the topic of allyship, because we've it's come up a few times, we've never really unpacked mm. it. And I do, I find it really interesting because um, I think like our perspectives respectively, like me and Jack are a bit different on it mm. while similar because mine, like mine's a complete like sibling is my connection. Like I have a, well, I had a sibling yeah. and um so for me it's always been that although I'm not disabled like I feel like my understanding is as an ally is is that me myself and the rest of my siblings would sort of never back down from standing up for people because we know what it's like through being a sibling and that's not this I feel like that's not always one that's brought up in the discussion like parents comes up a lot and disabled people but I feel like siblings sometimes get looked over so I'm just interested in how you would define like allyship in your I think it's true for for me I think for me I think anyone has the opportunity to be an ally of any um yeah a group that has protected characteristics I think um because you know it's the same as that you know I want to be a good ally for black and brown people I want to be a good ally for the LGBTQ plus community I want you know I'm, I'm constantly thinking and reminding myself um, that we're all human beings ultimately at the end of the day. And we're all here just trying to live as best we can um, within, unfortunately, these social structures that are very oppressive for actually, weirdly, a large amount of people. I mean, this is why, you know, I have a slight issue with this idea of a minority group because, um, you know, I spoke to uh, Claudia Arlick the other day for, for my podcast um, and, and she was kind of saying about the fact that, you know, especially with disability, um, we, we talk about minority groups, but actually disability is not a minority group because we're actually really, there's a lot of us out there. And the point is that anyone can end up joining this community at any point in their life. Um, and I actually think, you know, on, on that note, I, I cannot understand why um, a non-disabled person would not be an ally of um, the disability community because it's like, well, hello, you could... Um, like you could be something could the community tomorrow. tomorrow. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you could be a part of this community. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're flippant, oh, it doesn't matter, or, oh, we don't have a ramp, oh, well, too bad, or, oh, we don't have a hearing loop, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, it's only for one person, it doesn't matter. It's like, yeah, well, suddenly you need it. It's like, 
um, it puts you in that position of, of understanding them. And I think that's the thing with, with, with parents and siblings, I think, um, and you've probably had this discussion with a lot of people. I think they can be the best of allies, but they can also sometimes be the worst of allies. Um, and I think it's, it's trying to create that, that space between um, the actual, the person who experiences the discrimination because of disability and their loved ones and their friends and stuff like that. Because, you know, I, I have family members, you know, I mean, I have family members who sometimes say things that are very ableist and discriminatory, or they immediately they'll say something where I'm like, Oh my God, that's inspiration porn. Why are you talking about this? <laughs> like, um, and I know that they're not meaning it to hurt me in any way or anyone else in the community, but it's just like you, you have to understand that for the actual disabled people, of course it's, it's, it's always still going to be a very different experience. And I think the most important thing like with, with, siblings and parents is that they have to be able or be willing to eventually come to a point where maybe they step back again it's going to depend on the impairment because obviously there are some disabled people that cannot speak up for themselves um but in light of disabled people who who can i think the parents have to learn to step back and start to allow the individual to speak for themselves um, and in the case of say maybe someone with disability who can't speak for themselves it's perhaps like kind of what you're doing um tom which is being part of the disability community um is building that understanding from the disability community of what it's like to be disabled and um and being a voice from that perspective um instead of a kind of ableist perspective which i think can happen especially with some parents it's it's how i've gotten into trouble with some parents before because of because i've challenged them about stuff and and i do get it it's it you know i saw it with my own parents when i was born i know i understand obviously i wasn't there to i was a baby i didn't understand what was happening but as an adult and being told this stuff i understand that they were in shock that it wasn't what they were expecting that they had a lot to process um, but fundamentally, um, I think a lot of that is caused by this very ableist society yeah. that we live in because disability is seen as a bad thing. Um, when I'm, I'm like, I don't think it's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I'm quite proud of, proud of my limb difference. I'm quite proud of who I am. So, I um, Just because you oh, very sorry. briefly mentioned it uh, just then, I think it'd be, and it's weirdly a topic we've never actually really gone into before, and that's inspiration porn. Now, yeah. I'm wondering, because um, we may have some, like, I, I've used that term before, mm. with, like, friends, and they've never heard it before. Mm. Like, like, what is that? And they've, because oh, of course, the word, word porn's in it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, like what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so is this a new style? Like, is this a new fetish? Do I have to go and find it online somewhere? Um, I wonder if you could give, like, what you what you consider, like, your definition of, inspiration porn to be and then so, we can kind of see. i mean i mean first off i always say to people um go watch stella young's video on it because stella young can explain it way more articulately than, yeah, than a I TED can. Talk. 
Also yeah, Australian as well. Did a TEDx. So, and she's Australian and sadly she's not with us anymore, but you know, she's so amazing. Um, but I always direct people to go watch her TEDx talk because yeah, she just says it so to the point and articulately she does it. Whereas I just, I can waffle <laughs> as you've probably noticed. I can talk and talk and talk and probably turn people inside out and, and round in circles with explanations. So, um, I always direct them there first. But then for me, I think the easiest way for me to explain it to people um, is basically um, because, you know, for, for many years, I marketed myself as an inspirational speaker. Um, but what I've, what I've tried to do is explain to people that, that yes, there's some, some stuff that I've done that I'm happy for you to say is inspirational, but there's a lot of stuff that I do on a daily basis that I don't think is it's it's not inspirational so you need to you know when i'm talking to non-disabled people about it i say to them try and separate it in your head okay so um my paralympic stuff that's inspirational you can be inspired by that if you want because you're going to be inspired by olympians and paralympians and stuff like that and pe you know you're going to be inspired by people that flip and run marathons i'm inspired by them you know the ultra marathons and stuff like that it's it's doing something that is beyond the normal um, is like, fine. If you want to see that as inspirational, go for it. Um, but the fact that I'm getting up in the morning and living with my disability and, and am proud of my disability and am drinking tea out of a cup and driving a car and um, brushing my hair and stuff like that, that is not inspirational. And I don't want that stuff used to make you feel a either bad about yourself or feel like that you're not doing enough to reach your potential. Like that's just normal life stuff that doesn't have to be used as motivation for you to go out and achieve something amazing. So I kind of see inspiration porn as that using disability. I see it as tying into pity a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like the, Oh, well look, this person is living. So, um, so if you're not achieving your potential, um, then, you know, look at that person because yeah. your situation's better than theirs and you should go out and achieve amazing yeah. things because that's a disabled person could do, you could do it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's like, yeah, like I said, I can waffle. <laughs> All right. I'm done a better job. In, as we were like emailing and stuff before this, you, you said, um, cause we've been kind of using rising mm -hmm. Phoenix as kind of a, basis for what we're yeah. talking about and you you said it does a pretty good job but not being inspiration porn now yeah. as i was watching it i was thinking yeah there were a few moments i was like oh yeah. we're going there oh, yeah good. yeah All right. um, me too <laughs> but they just they always pulled it back just enough and i think i think what they made it about when it came to about the sport they met they did it well in that they made it just about the sport yeah. it wasn't like of course they talked about the like the athletes impairments and their experiences growing up and what happened but i think they kept it just on the right line of not making it inspiration yeah. point and i'll admit that was my biggest worry going into it watching it you know the the producers had contacted me and asked me can you watch it can you tweet about it da 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 and i was like yeah okay <laughs> like because thinking oh my god what if this ends up being like the biggest like um documentary of inspiration porn the world has ever seen yeah. and i'm like 
and I can't, I can't keep my mouth shut about stuff. So it was like, if this is awful, I'm going to say it's awful, but I'll say, yes, they, they did it well. There was a great line, which I think really kind of summarizes like how it should be. I think it was the founder's daughter again, terrible with names. Yeah. And she, and it's she was talking about the London Olympics. I think it's yeah. the one with where where uh, Johnny Peacock won. And yeah. She said like there was a full stadium and they were all cheering, but they weren't cheering for the disability. They were cheering for the sport. Yeah. And I think that's a good way of kind of summarizing how it doesn't veer into inspiration porn because it they're, exactly. they're cheering they're cheering for the sport. The documentary itself they were, they were cheering, cheering for the sport. Because, not yeah. The they were seeing. They were seeing a sporting spectacle, one that they had just seen at the Olympics, and they were getting to see it again at the Paralympics. It's, and that is what I think London really did well and created for the disability, uh, for the Paralympic movement. Um, was this? I it finally clocked it over into this realm of it's elite sport. That's what it is. It's not. It's not, oh, bless them. Look at all the disabled people um, running around a track or swimming in a pool. Oh, aren't they clever? It's like, no, it wasn't that. It was a, like, it, it, it was literally tipped over to that, you know, yeah. like, oh my God, they ran so fast. That's amazing. Oh my God, they smashed the world record. That's so cool. Or, you know, it was all about the sport, the actual yeah. sport. And it was the first Paralympics I remember ever really having like big promotion, like on TV and stuff. And yeah. um, it's the first one I can remember. And there was the, and I know we were slight, we were talking about this before you came on, that they were using this um, uh, slogan of like, meet the superhumans kind of thing. Mm. And we were wondering what your take on that was. Um, it's like, Channel 4, I love you. <laughs> but <laughs> I've not been afraid to say this, you know, um, I mean, me, me as a, you know, I, I, I had my experience as a Paralympian and I recognized that, you know, I worked bloody hard to be an elite athlete. I worked just as hard as the Olympians did to be an elite athlete. Um, and I think, um, my, my issue with the whole term superhuman is the, what it did for the entire disability community is split. So I think, you know, it kind of, in terms of the actual Paralympians, I don't have too much of an issue with it. As long as you're going to call like Olympians superhumans as well, because personally, I think they're superhumans as well. I mean, I know the amount of work that goes into doing that. And there are not many people that would be prepared to do the amount of work that Olympians and Paralympians put into achieving what they do. Um, so, you know, in, on that front, I'm okay with that. But I completely understand a majority of the disability community that did have issues around it. It was because it was coming at a time specifically, um, and you don't mind getting political, do you? Oh, no. <laughs> it's coming at a time specifically when the Tories were really starting to drive the rhetoric around scrounger and that, you know, ra really raising this idea that disabled people are lazy and worthless and are stealing all your tax money and all this stuff. And um, so in, in the kind of public mind, you've, you've got this split of, well, if you're disabled, you're either a superhuman and wow, look at you, or, oh, you're a lazy scrounger who's taking all our money. Um, and 
so I, I recognize and I hear and I, and I really did hear a lot of disabled people um, and acknowledge this issue that for them, they would be told, get off benefits and go compete at the Paralympics or something like that. You know, it was this like, you have to be either, you know, you one or the other. And like, you, you should, you should go be in the Paralympics. You should go do this. And it's like, well, what if you're um, a disabled person who absolutely loathes sport, is no good at it, but you love the theatre or you love art or you love writing or you want to be an accountant, for goodness sake, or, you know, you, yeah. um, your interest is not that. Why can you not be seen for having potential and then get the support that actually you do need to reach that potential from the government, which is completely fair. Um, to level the playing field so that you can do that. Um, so yeah, there was, for me, there is that split. It's not, it's not black and white. You can't, you, you, I did have issues around the term superhuman, I think just in what it planted in the psyche of the wider community around disability. I think as well, like the, it's the like blanket term use of it. Mm. So like I've seen, um, there's a rapper, Laurel Carner, who has ADHD, and I've mm-hmm. read, quite, I've seen quite a few interviews of him where he refers to it as sort of his like superpower. Yeah. Um, but in the interviews, he's very, he's talking about one about himself and two, like that for what he does, it's been really useful. But also, there's all these people who don't have that experience, and that's very like one way look at it for him. Yeah. So I feel like I've always sort of taken that to be like, well, that's your understanding of your own condition. But when it's like a blanket term used, to describe like a big group yeah. of athletes as you say it just becomes sort of a bit well, it just becomes a blanket term for sort of disability at that point because the does. Paralympics is that point where everyone's talking about it so it's well it's that representation isn't it? like the Paralympics even even today is still like you ask someone can you name a Paralympian and now actually a lot of non-disabled people will be like oh yeah like Johnny Peacock or Ellie Simmons or you know they'll be able to name someone but if you say to them can you name a disabled actor or can you name a disabled artist or musician they would probably be like no actually I have absolutely no idea and so the Paralympics have almost become like this this representation of an entire community when in actual fact um, the Paralympians only represent a small number of that community and that particular experience and I think that's what people are failing to understand not all disabled people are Paralympians or desire to become Paralympians it's the same as in non-disabled people not everyone is an Olympian and not everyone desires to become an Olympian and I think a lot for a lot of non-disabled people they forget about that you know we're human beings too and we're just like everyone else some of us are really into sport and some of us are not and that's okay (laughs) like that's fine yeah it almost creates like this attitude of for a disabled person to have worth they have to be Mm. doing be an elite athlete basically that's that's kind Which of load, that was my kind of take on take yeah. on that phrase and it's a load of rubbish it's like any everyone as far as i'm concerned everyone everyone has worth whether just by the fact that you're a human being you have worth you know if if you're loved by someone you have worth if you you know you have a right to be here it doesn't matter whether you're you lead the most boring life on the planet you have worth and you deserve to be here and you deserve to be treated with respect so just because 
a, a number of us disabled people decided we wanted to um, become Paralympians doesn't mean that every other single disabled person has no worth, has no value. I think, again, to get political, it's the, the climate, still at the moment, but at the time as well, since 2010, I guess, well, since mm. before then, but the, the type of government since 2010, um, it's been that whole sort of, your worth is determined by your economic input. <laughs> Okay. And then there's also, but that also comes with this assumption that disabled people can't be economically hmm. viable, which isn't true at all. And we we had um, uh, Gavin Neat on, who was talking about this quite strongly to do with um, the spending power. But that's a that's a different. Yeah, it's just yeah. relevant. Yeah. Um. But it's just again, it, it, you boil down, and then suddenly at the same time you have this idea that actually, well, you you're either economically viable, or you're sort of superhuman athlete again these boxes just become really like set whereas i feel like if you're not disabled you just don't have any of that obviously you people who aren't disabled still have boxes you're put in but you're not sort of given these choices of either sort of you're a scrounger or a superhuman or you make a way for yourself but there's yeah. not any sort of space in between you don't have any time to decide you're sort of being no. benefits are being cut as it's going you don't have any time to sort of work out what you want to do it's just pick one of those things and then you'll get treated differently because of it an, yeah. ordinary, an ordinary life isn't an option yeah exactly yeah. and i think and i think that's the thing isn't it and that's that's like the the big issue with you know when you talk about benefit cuts and stuff like that i just think you know i've been through the pip process and i was terrified you know when i got the letter to come off dla for three months, I was literally living in an anxiety bubble. I was so stressed because I was convinced, you know, I, I have a car through mobility and without that car, I would literally be stuck. I, I, um, I just, I wouldn't be able to work. I wouldn't be able to, to, to have the independence that I have. And, and this fear that that was going to be taken away from me and that I'm being punished. And I think for a lot of disabled people, they see it this way is that you're being punished for something that you absolutely have no control over. I, I didn't grow in my mother's womb going, right, I'm going to stop my right arm growing here and I'm going to stop my right leg growing here. You know, <laughs> I didn't make that choice my body grew that way um but the point is society has a choice to become less ableist society has a choice to become more accessible and more supportive of of people that maybe need an environment um and representation and and space that is built more for them and i mean the crazy thing is like and i hear so many people say that if you make a space accessible for disabled people, you make it accessible for everyone. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. You make this world accessible for disabled people, you make it accessible for every single person. Yeah, we had and, um, Carrie Ann Lightly on last yep, week. Yep. Love she Carrie Ann. Yep, love Carrie She was saying that about accessible, like mm. it's, it's not just for people with disabilities, it's like useful for anyone to have yeah. a good idea of like how they can access it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think that's what, you know, I'm, I really wish that a lot of like designers, architects, city planners, and that, you know, I think they really need to get some disability awareness training for these people, because um, they really need to approach design the way that we design the, the spaces that we live in and access um, 
they really need to have that layer of disability awareness mm -hmm. in what they're doing. Um, and whether that means, you know, even if it's basic disability awareness, so at least it's there in the back of their mind and they can go, okay, well, actually, as part of, say, um, you know, testing this design or whatnot, I'm going to make sure that there are a variety of disabled people within, say, the group that I'm going to give this product to or something. So I can actually get feedback that is going to be genuinely helpful to every single person. And to kind of tie in with the Paralympics, something else Carrie was saying, like she really loved going to Barcelona because mm. um, lots of the things that were put in place for when they held the Paralympics mm. stayed there. Whereas uh, apparently in London, a lot of things that were put in place for the Paralympics were then just taken away. <laughs> like, I think that if anything speaks yeah. to like the government's kind of attitude towards disability, it's that. It's that. that. It's like, right, well, well, in a way, you know, as successful as the London Games were, and they were brilliantly successful, and I'm so proud of um, the way that, that um, England, that London put them on. It was really spectacular. But I think for the government, it was almost like a tick box. Sister. You know, it's the whole tick box thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, look, we put the Paralympics on. Look how brilliant it was. Look, we support disabled people. But, you know, as soon as that spotlight is off, it's like, right, let's just wash that all away and get back to normal of being an extremely ableist, inaccessible society for um, about 15% of the population. <laughs> I think that's the one of the things that like stuck to me when I read, um, I read Frances Ryan's book Crippled mm. um, and she came on the podcast and we spoke to her about it um, before it came out. And mm. again, it just, it makes, for me at least, it makes that whole buzz. And cause I was, I was 12 when the London 2012 was. Mm. And I remember just being so like, this is amazing. Like this Paralympics is great. I'd never really watched the Olympics or the Paralympics properly before. And I remember really being like, this is just amazing like all these different yeah. sports um but now as like a 21 year old and a bit more sort of clued in and everything that that book as well it just makes you realize that kind of it is almost like what what was the point of all of it like yeah. in a way it was a, it was a great thing and it was good but actually what every and, it, and if anything it didn't help in the sense that people who don't have any attachment feel like we do we are yeah. good because we put on a good Paralympics so for me it like almost becomes this whole sort of sham of like well we've just sort of convinced and fooled the world and thinking really it's just like minimizing your uh, yeah minimizing your solitaire game when your boss walked past yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like and then these these really just that book especially is like these really damning accounts of horrific stories of just heartless heartless like decisions made by the government and you just think these are the same people that sort of had the like yeah. Boris Johnson had the audacity to sort of turn up and talk about the Paralympics with such pride and it's like you're you're arguably evil that's the thing that I really like struggled <laughs> yeah. with that when I what read the you, book yeah what you what you're doing in general to disabled people is despicable and um and you know and we see it they do it to to refugees as well asylum yeah. seekers it's like any anyone that is seen as other or as you said earlier tom not economically viable is like well you know let's um shove them under the rug and try and get rid of them basically and we see it even now with the pandemic you know the fact that shielders are now allowed out and about when it's like 
um, the numbers are actually rising yeah. and actually the risk to them is getting higher and higher every day. And it's like, and you want these people to go back to work and, you know, and I really feel for, um, because I'm really, because I've done so much work in education and schools. Um, I follow a lot of teachers on social media and there's a lot who have, especially invisible disabilities, um, who are in, essentially in the high risk. Cause I think that's the other thing a lot of people have to understand with the pandemic. Yes, I'm disabled, but I'm not technically high risk because I don't have a chronic illness or underlying condition that would make me high risk. I'm just missing a few limbs, you know, um, but for a lot of teachers out there with invisible um, uh, disabilities and chronic illnesses, they're having to go back to work, even though they are high risk and the, the possibility of them actually getting very sick from COVID is really concerning. And yet the government doesn't seem to want to acknowledge this. And, and you know, I've seen some people tweet out saying, oh, well, they're basically trying to get rid of us, like kill us off. And you, and um, you could be really cynical and look at it and go, actually, yeah. Yeah, there's quite a strong case to be made that it is sort of the whole herd immunity thing was a sort of mm. soft eugenics of like, who can we, basically, yeah. the, the sort of people we don't want, we'll, we'll just send them out and hope that they don't come back sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's... um Horrifying. Yeah. And I think as well, the statistics as well, you, they tried to cover up deaths mm. that shouldn't have happened by saying they had underlying health conditions when, as you've just said, like the underlying health condition was nothing that would affect you COVID-wise yeah always an even underlying health condition but they sort of just were able to kind of say yes this amount of people died but x were really old and x had these conditions and then x were sort but of then, then your average person when but then that's it's not like the whole the whole thing with that and i find it really cold is when you do reduce people to numbers because it's like those even you know you you saying oh well those elderly people they were going to die yeah. soon anyway and it's like yeah but hang on there was they were potentially someone's grandparent parent aunt uncle sister friend um you know they were loved and cared about and you're just flippantly saying oh well they were probably going to die soon anyway and it's like i mean even if you were going to die tomorrow like the, to go out with covid is such a horrible way so, yeah. you know i mean it's not it's not a pleasant so i think i'm yeah i agree it's the it's almost justifying something that's injustifiable but again, yeah. questions have to be asked one of the government, but also I think of the public that got fooled by this London mm. 2012s thing to be more, people need to be more sort of questioning and understanding that they, the yeah. superhuman isn't, isn't, it all, think, isn't the end of it. It isn't. And I think it's why it's so important that, um, you know, a lot of the work I do in schools now is actually about, I do disability awareness, but I actually say to staff, now I'm not here to talk to your SEND kids because they're disabled already and they yeah. know what it's like. I don't need to talk to them about this. <laughs> um, it's actually your non-disabled kids and stuff that I need to talk to. Um, because I think we do need to talk more and more about what it means to be disabled, about what the experience is like, what the, the subtle differences between not just disability, but also experiences in light of the Paralympics um, and just everything else that, that a disabled person's value or worth isn't wrapped up into whether they can become an elite athlete or not. Um, it's like, what about, as I've said before, you know, disabled people are human beings. We're just like everybody else and we have different interests and we have different potential and different skills. And we should be focusing on enabling disabled people to thrive and flourish with 
with their interests and their skills and their potential if they so wish to. Um, because, you know, guaranteed salute out to all the people out there that don't want to achieve anything. Like if you just want to live your day-to-day -day life, however the hell you want, as far as I'm concerned, if you're not hurting anyone, go do it. But we should be given um, the support to, to do that um, and the understanding from the wider community to, to live the life that we want to live, basically. Yeah. Well, we should uh, start wrapping things up. But I know you, you have a lot of different things that we need to kind of promote in a way. Um, so we've mentioned the podcast. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yep. So the podcast is tied up with um, about six months ago, I started a publication on Medium because being a disabled woman who loves reading things like Marie Claire and Vogue and stuff like that, I felt like there was not enough disability representation in those types of women's magazines. So I wanted to start my own, a publication for disabled women by disabled women, where we can discuss everything, whether lifestyle, fashion, beauty, culture, whatever. Um, but through the lens of being a disabled woman. So I'd started that medium publication um, uh, with the aim as well. So we're on Patreon as well, because I want to be able to pay um, disabled women writers a fair industry fee. But obviously I'm, I'm a self-employed person and it's expensive to do that off my own back. So I have Patreon as well, where I, I have a growing community of, of supporters who are helping me to be able to, to pay my writers. Um, and as part of that, there is the podcast, the Conscious Being podcast, where I interview disabled women and we just talk about shit basically <laughs> what it's like to be a disabled woman um um and and how you know we kind of want society to to understand that um so um that's kind of the the conscious being stuff um which i'm just dead proud of <laughs> yeah and he also mentioned that you're creating a magazine now you're also editing a different magazine yes so i'm now an editor editor and creator of conscious being and a few weeks ago i got the job as as editor for disability review magazine which is um it's a growing disability mag uk that has over um a million subscribers already which is absolutely fantastic this is my first issue going out soon so i'm a little bit nervous but um really excited to to have been um editing it and bringing it together um and having that creative control and um and the theme for november's issue is really looking at leadership inspiration and leadership so looking at um the people in our community who are doing amazing stuff to raise awareness around disability um which i think is really important um for for people in our community to to see and have that representation awesome is there uh, any i'm sure there are <laughs> oh, that's, I, do everything. I do loads of things i speak yeah. in schools or run workshops in schools and for businesses and organizations around disability awareness and all this stuff you know what literally i just talk about disability so yeah. <laughs> i can't shut up about it yeah. so <laughs> and what's the best way for people to kind of is Twitter the best way? And then um, your website? Yeah, Twitter. Um, there's Twitter, which I'm at Esul on Twitter. It's a really difficult thing. It's an anagram of my middle name, if you want to know, <laughs> <laughs> which I realise it's really complicated now. Um, but I'm sure, like, could you put it in the show notes or something? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, we and, do. and do that. Um, and then there is my website as well, which is um, www.elizabethwright.net. Awesome. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for coming thank on. Today. Yeah, thank you very really much. Great. That was really so interesting. Much and Tom. Yeah. You guys are awesome. Oh, Brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Zoo!
Louie, mama, what a podcast. <laughs> we'll die every wimpy kid reference for you all there. Thank um, you so much, the... Liz. I noticed that yeah. in the intro we called her Elizabeth, but now, after that, we're friends. Thanks, Liz. Lizzie. On Twitter, she references it. It's a little bit difficult to find, so I'm just going to get it out there now while I have it on my phone. Yeah, get it out, Tom. It is at E-C-U-L, which is spelled E-S-I-O-U-L, which is just Louise backwards. Louise backwards. But also, if you type in Elizabeth Wright on Twitter and go on People, she's like the top one. Yeah. Um, and as she also mentioned, you can go on ElizabethWright.net, and that's right with a W. We like hope Chris Hatton you... with an H. He's Liz Wright with a W. We hope you um, feel like we justified calling the Paralympics a sham in the intro. <laughs> hope it all became clear. There hope we still have a podcast next week. Towards the, <laughs> the Paralympics, it's a sham, not the Paralympics itself. I think as well, the, um, I didn't do the Tanny Gray Thompson episode, so I don't know. I can't, I, I can't recall, but the, actually just hearing the experience of just being a top tier athlete as well. But sometimes that happens with this podcast where we end up talking about not strictly disability things. And it just blows my mind. Like the Olympic Village stuff. Can we just reflect on that quickly? <laughs> well, I, I want to go. With Tony Gray Thompson, we didn't talk about the Olympics at all. Just about trains and public transport. I want to go to the Olympic Village. I think we can be plus ones if we... I mean, if you watch Rising Phoenix, when it's in Rio, that place looks like an absolute party. But maybe that was just because it was the Rio de Janeiro attitude. Do you think it's bed by 10, though? Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> I can't hack it past 10. <laughs> um, no, but thank you very much to Liz for coming on and talking about all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, all very interesting. Great. Um, you can follow us at Challenging Pod. Not CB podcast, like some chump said last week. Oh, but no. at the same time, a different chump didn't realise he said the wrong one. Uh, so, at Challenging Pod. And you can email us, challengingbehaviourspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're nearly at 1,000 followers. Uh, we're, at, we're getting close to 800. Not too shabby. One day. We've currently got... Uh, two more scheduled and potentially we were, ju- we were talking about one more potential one to go as well so you know we still got a bit of time to reach that 1000 mark please <laughs> Tom, it's all Tom wants I feel like we would have made it because <laughs> we had about 50 followers for the first like 20 episodes or something yeah. so but really I think up. the great thing, the thing you should realise there is for those first episodes where we only had about 50 followers, it's because it's just me, you and Adam. What's wrong with Adam? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying once we yeah, started we having guests, yeah. people started to actually be so like, oh, initially, you're just, to if me. Adam's listening, he's going to be deeply offended. <laughs> we didn't realise there, Tom, was that it was actually because we had Adam on the podcast and nobody <laughs> wanted to bother. <laughs> Adam still listens I mean, as well, so he's going to hear that and he's going to be really let's just, let's just face the facts right now. Once Adam stopped doing it, the followers started pouring in. Surely that's because we replaced them with guests every week. Exactly. So, Speaking of guests every week, I still want him to come back on as a guest. So maybe yeah, if, we, we try if he's and, listening right now. Yeah, if you're listening, Adam. 
come on. Just come on now. Please. <laughs> All right. I guess this is bye. No, it's not. It's smell you later. Louis smell Mama. you later, Tom. <laughs> Say something cool. Paralympics are very cool. We had to, we didn't say it in that because the but they are very you, cool. you were alluding to the fact they were a sham. Bye. Bye. Bye.